This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome. My name is John Dunn, and this week on the Best Friends Podcast, we're going to be talking about data. Now, I love data. I love talking about it. It can be tricky to do on an audio podcast. However, today is going to be easier than I've had it in previous episodes because the focus is going to be on just a couple of particular data points, length of stay and days in care. Now, we're doing this not only because we should all understand these important data points, we're talking about it because for both length of stay and days in care, the trends are currently going in the wrong direction. So for today's episode, we're going to look at why we think the trends are the way they are, what we think lies ahead over the next few weeks and months, but more importantly, what we can all do to try to send that number in the opposite direction. As always, this is a general conversation, so your mileage may vary when it comes to your own community and your own organization. But check out the show notes on your podcast player or head to the website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. We've got links to some incredibly helpful resources, bestfriends.org slash podcast. You can scroll down, click the link for episode 92, or again, check out the show notes. Okay, so to talk this one through, we sat down with the Senior Director of National Programs for Best Friends, Brent Tolner. Brent, can we start with the basics? It seems sort of obvious, but what is length of stay? What is days in care? And why are those two data points important? There are two distinctly different measurements there. So one is length of stay, which is the length of time that an animal from their start data coming into the shelter to the day that they leave the shelter would be your length of stay for that animal. So if the animal comes in, you know, on a Monday, leaves on the following Saturday, the length of stay for that animal was six days. Uh, the average length of stay for a shelter would then be the average of every animal from when it comes in to when it leaves the shelter. The days in care number is similar but different in the way that it's measuring the animals that are still at your shelter and how long those animals have remained at the shelter. So they haven't even had a final outcome yet, but they've been at your shelter for 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, in some extreme cases, maybe 120, 180 days. And so those are the two measurements when we talk about length of stay. It would be length of stay that's outcome-based versus length of stay that's um, based on the time or the animals that are still in your care. And they're really important measurements because essentially shelter's capacity is made up of how many kennels that they have, but it's also how many animals that come in and the amount of time that they're there. So, you know, a shelter that has a 20-day average length of stay can only house half as many animals safely as a shelter with a 10-day average length of stay. And so being able to reduce that length of stay allows you to increase the capacity safely increase the capacity of the animals uh, and number of animals that are in your shelter. So what is good in terms of these things? Is there a number that we can say sort of across the industry, you know, we know that if your length of stay is at X, then you're probably doing okay in this regard. I don't think it varies a lot because part of the, the equation is even the amount of time that an animal is on a stray hold. Uh, so, you know, if you have an average length of stay of 10 days, like in some states, Five days, maybe on straight hold. It may be four, maybe three, depending on what what that law is. Um, in general, a lot of the higher volume shelters that are running pretty efficiently will run in kind of that ten to twelve 
average days of average length of stay. Uh, I've seen some places that are very high volume that will have it down to seven or eight uh, because they have to, uh, because of the volume of animals that are coming in. And certainly uh, it can be a lot higher, uh, particularly for shelters that are not open intake shelters so that they, they may hold on to animals a little bit longer. And in part, it's not driven by the volume of animals that are coming in. You know, I suppose my follow-up to that was going to be, is there then a, a bad one? You know, if we know you're at a certain number, and this may be a dumb question, as you said, there are a lot of variables involved as to why this number could be affected up or down. So it seems logical to me to ask, given the amount of variables, how helpful are these data points? You know, how much stock should we be putting in this, uh, you know, these individual data points? Or is this just really like one marker of a much bigger kind of picture? I think it's a really important measure. And again, for especially your municipal shelters that are, or shelters that have contracts. So they're taking in animals every day, uh, often whether they really choose to or not. Their biggest constraints are that of time and space. So the, they've run out of space for animals and therefore animals become at risk or animals run out of time at the shelter, so they become at risk. And so to me, I think it's a really important measure for those shelters that are, are more open intake, if you will, shelters that they need to move volume of animals very, very quickly so they can free up that time and capacity and, and create time and space by getting animals through their system very, very quickly. And so I do think it's a really important measure for those municipal agencies in, in particular. And the reality is like we do a lot of behavior programs and enrichment programs at shelters, but the reality still is like even in great shelters, it's still not the ideal setting for most animals that come in. That being in a home is a, a better situation for them. And so I think even for shelters that can manage that intake, the ability to move animals out more quickly is a, a benefit to those animals. Those variables, Brent, you know, with the national increase in life-saving efforts across the board, across the country over the last few years, there's a focus on saving animals that, you know, maybe not, wouldn't have had a chance a few years ago. So office dogs, office cats, office pigs, sometimes, uh, you know, animals that just for one reason or another can't find the right home. So, you know, I think it's more and more common to see animals staying at a shelter for a long time, say as an office dog, you know, a staff favorite, loved on, doted on daily, but is still in care. I imagine animals in those situations are counted and things like foster care. So if I have a robust foster program and I've got a lot of animals out in foster, is it going to be reflected in these data points in the wrong way, if you will? Yeah, I mean, so it does count animals in a lot of different situations. So it counts animals that are in the shelter in a traditional kennel environment. It will count animals that are the office cat or whatever will usually count for that. And it also counts animals that are in a foster home, which is obviously a different living environment for it. And so there are a lot of different variables that are at play on it. But I think that's where people understanding what's going on at their shelter and what their individual capacities are and, and what their capacity for foster home is versus their capacity at the shelter uh, is really important. That said, like even foster homes and animals that are in fosters, they still require resources from the shelter staff. You still have to provide medical care for those animals that are in foster. You may still need to provide service to the foster. And plus that foster home is essentially a 
an extension of your capacity at your shelter. So the quicker you can move the animal from the foster home into the adoptive home, the quicker that foster can potentially then foster another animal for you. So it, you know, if you think about fosters as an extension of that time and space kind of constraint, you realize it is important to move them out of those foster homes and even out of the office cat situation, even fairly quickly. Data as we know it still in so many ways new to the industry so this may be difficult to answer, but I think with the pandemic, I always wonder where some of these things stack up pre-COVID. So what do we know historically that can help us understand the trends better? Is what we're seeing now simply sort of a post-COVID bump back to something that was a bit more normal? Does that, does that even make sense? Like, I don't want to say post-COVID because we're definitely not post-COVID, but just bump, you know, a back to something that is a bit more 2017. I think the way you have to think about measuring it is by what's happening inside the shelter. So, you know, obviously one of the drivers for what's going on in length of stay is the volume of animals that are coming in versus the volume of animals going out. But when the number of animals going out and the speed at which they're going out isn't keeping up with the pace of animals coming in, you have that stress point at the shelter level. And I think that's how you know that right now we're in a bit of a challenging time. Uh, I hesitate to use the word crisis, but it is challenging because we know the volume of animals that are currently in shelters is substantially higher than it was in 2020 at this time and certainly higher than it was in 2019 at this time. And so when you start realizing, okay, shelters are struggling because they're short-staffed, they're struggling hiring and retaining staff like we are in a lot of industries out there, and then you're tacking onto that, that there are more animals that are in care than there have been previously. You know that that's a stress point that reducing length of stay can help relieve uh, to a degree by getting animals through the, the system more quickly. Outcomes, obviously the big key here, you know, if animals aren't going out, as you say, to positive outcomes, adoption, transfer, transport, then that number will reflect that. And it sounds like those numbers are also, in fact, down, which is concerning. Is everything lining up here to show that, yes, we are kind of in a bit of a pickle right now? It, they're pointing in the direction of this uh, being a little bit in a pickle. Like we've seen over the course of the last year that adoptions have been soft. You know, dog adoptions at the last time I saw a number was at the end of September and dog adoptions were down almost 7% versus even 2020 numbers, um, they were down even way more than that. So they were down to 28% uh, versus 2019, so pre-pandemic. So we know that adoptions, particularly for dogs, are soft. That's impacting the transport numbers. You know, if a northern shelter or wherever isn't getting animals adopted, then they don't have room to bring some in. So uh, the, actually the transport out number is down almost exactly the same number, just under 7% for dogs. And so we're kind of seeing not only are they not moving out through adoption as quickly, they're also not moving out in transport as quickly. And so then when you see that combined with a higher length of stay, you start understanding why there are more animals in the shelter, in the collective group of shelters than we saw in 2020, for sure, and, and even 2019, uh, pre-pandemic. It's hard to believe, but we are closing in on two years of the pandemic. Maybe I was just getting used to the year-over-year -year increase in life-saving, watching that national number of animals dying drop each year. And now it sort of feels a bit like we're on a roller coaster where we're doing great 
oh, look, it's the pandemic. What is this going to do? Oh, well, you know, actually, this is pretty positive. Oh, but wait, hold on. Now we're down. Oh, we're up. We're down. Am I just feeling like this because I'm paying attention more because of the podcast? Well, I, th I think it's always been like this to a degree, but I think it's been heightened by the fact that there's so much uncertainty. If you look at the trends over time, they've been fairly consistent going back 10, 15 years. We've steadily seen slight decreases in the number of animals that are coming into shelters. We're seeing slight increases in the volume that are going out. And those two lines are basically getting to the point where they're merging. So it's like, hopefully someday the number coming in will equal the number going out safely. And, and at that point, you're at no kill, right? And so like we've slowly seen those two lines getting closer to each other. And I think the pandemic has thrown everything in a loop because you saw intakes go down dramatically. You saw adoptions go down dramatically. Uh, and now you're seeing intake go up some, not a ton, but some, but the positive outcomes not keeping pace with that um, slight increase of that going up. And so I think it's that uncertainty where every before the pandemic and pre-pandemic, it felt reliable and you knew what to expect. And I think nobody knows what to expect. And that's creating some of the, that challenge that's out there. I sort of buried the lead here a little bit, I suppose, because the big question is, what do we do about it? I'm glad we're doing this podcast because in my opinion, whether it's length of stay, any other data point that's going the wrong way, you know, sometimes there can be a bit of an alarmist feel to it. Um, you know, and, and oftentimes the answer really isn't do some new thing, right? It's make sure the basics are sorted out, make sure you're doing them and you're doing them well. You know, to a degree, that's one of the challenges when we look at data from a national basis. The national data can only tell us so much, but there are so many other variables on a shelter by shelter level that it's always best to look tighter in on your community to know exactly where some of those foundational programs that may have lapsed over the last couple of years may be. So like we do know a lot of shelters are struggling with adoption programs and can we ramp up those adoption programs? So a lot of shelters are still operating on reduced hours because they don't have the staff or uh, their communities, there's still some communities that are in some form of lockdown kind of mode. And so for whatever reason, they're closed two or three days a week now where they used to be open all seven. And and that hurts your volume of adoptions that you're doing. We certainly see fewer high volume adoption promotions where we used to do these huge mega and super adoption events where people become less comfortable doing those because they don't have the staff to manage them. And because of social distancing concerns, they don't want a huge crowded shelter, which I get. But it's like we need to get back to some of those foundational programs that will help bring those adoption numbers back up. You know, I know that you've had Caitlin Quinn on on the podcast. Um, you know, she has a lot of great ideas on marketing and especially marketing some of the animals that have been in your care for a longer period of time. And what can you do for some of those folks that uh, have been with you so we can get them out so they're not taking up kennel space that you badly need for new animals that are coming in? I think doing some things to empower your fosters. So that if you have animals that are in fosters, like it was, used to be commonplace for dogs or cats to go into foster. And then at some point in time, they would come back to the shelter and get adopted back out. Well, the shelters don't have the capacity to take them back in now. So like, what can we do to empower those foster homes to go directly from a foster home into a new home so they feel comfortable making that transaction on behalf of of the shelter. Uh, I think the same thing is true for the community. So how, like, how can you empower the community 
when they find a lost pet to like we know most pets get lost and they are found within just a few blocks of where they live but often we take them all the way across town they go to the shelter and it becomes harder to find them than if they would have just stayed in the neighborhood so what are we doing to empower enable these friendly finders giving them the resources so they can maybe reunite that pet in their neighborhoods as opposed to getting the coming directly to the shelter as the first stop for it. And so I think that there are some of those things that are foundational programs that we can do that will a help reunite pets in the field so that they're not coming into the shelter in the first place and empowering the public to do that. Um, but also once they get there, creating those positive outcomes for them again. And some of the same ways that maybe we just kind of forgot how to do or aren't comfortable doing yet or we don't have the staff to do because the pandemic sort of disrupted the flow of all of that and I you know the other thing I always encourage shelters to do is you know make plans for their pets right away I think too often shelters find themselves in a situation where like they know the animals that have longer lengths of stay and their their shelters they know that certain types of animals just don't move out as quickly and what they should be doing is making a plan right away for some of those pets that maybe fit that profile and start those marketing programs sooner for them so instead of waiting 60 120 days with that pet being in the shelter and it's like oh gizmo's been here for 120 days like we should really start a marketing program for him and it's like well maybe we should have done that when we recognize that he fits the profile of a lot of other dogs that are usually here for 120 days. And we should have started that on day five so that we could get Gizmo out more quickly. And so I think it's some of those foundational things that we do need to get back to, as opposed to chasing this as a shiny object. Like all of these foundational programs are what is driving that, that shiny object to, to be an issue now. Last week, we talked about the amazing partnership happening in the Pacific Northwest between Spoke Animal and Catholic Charities you know, supporting pet owners before those animals go into the the door of the shelter. And what a great example that is of a program where you're not only executing on programs in the community to reduce intake, but you're also partnering with organizations that can help share the burden of offering the support. I can't say it enough on the podcast, coalitions, partnerships, they matter. And I think the pandemic has sort of put us in this old mindset, right? Like, I think for we were getting better at embracing the community and inviting them into our shelters and meeting with our coalition partners. And then the pandemic when we was like, well, we don't want you here because you might give us COVID or, you know, we don't want to go out to dinner because there are, are concerns around that. And, and those are legitimate concerns. I don't want to diminish that. But at the same time, it sort of collectively caused all of us to end up spending a lot more time just within ourselves and our small groups of people. And I think branching that out and it's like, well, we do, we do need the public to come in and visit our shelter. We do need them to come in to adopt. We need a lot of them to come in and adopt and foster. Uh, and we need to be doing more of that public outreach. I think it's going to be a hard habit for people to get back into, but I think it's going to be really important for us to kind of deal with the new reality of, you know, the number of pets, coming into shelters starting to creep up and we can't continue to just do appointment-based adoptions, not do adoption events, being closed three days a week and expect that we're going to be able to keep up. It's showing that that's not happening in most communities. The point you make about large-scale adoption events, you know, I hadn't even thought of that. Some of my earliest experiences in animal welfare as a volunteer 
uh, was working super adoptions in Salt Lake. You know, this big adoption event in a PetSmart parking lot, four, five, six hundred animals going home, uh, you know, thousands of people coming through over two and a half days. But if I think about myself at one of those events right now, Brent, I mean, I don't know if I want to do that. And this is an important note, me, you, best friends, no one is suggesting you do anything unsafe that you're not comfortable with. But all that just to say, it highlights what happens when our tried and true life-saving efforts are upended. You know, our stopgap measures that we've been able to, to implement during COVID, it seems like they're only going to take us so far. So putting myself now in the shoes of a shelter leader, I'm having to make decisions that in order to save lives, I'm potentially putting my staff and the public at risk. I get that. And I would, re- and I respect that challenge that directors are in, you know, in, in terms of how they want to balance that. But I think it's the recognition of it that like, this is a thing that we used to have as a tool that we used to have in our toolbox. And maybe, maybe we don't feel comfortable doing that right now in the current environment. Like we've got like yet another new variant that's coming out. Like maybe we don't feel comfortable doing that, but what can we do to replicate it? Or what other things can we do to offset it a little bit? You know, can we do more smaller offsite adoption things? Can we do more outside adoption events uh, where we are getting animals outside of the shelter and using volunteers to do that? Can we be open longer hours so we can at least space that out or be open for adoption for longer hours? And yeah, like I know that the staffing thing is a huge issue there, but it's like we're going to have to figure out like solutions for it. Otherwise, I, I always tell people like if the volume of animals leaving the shelter doesn't equal the volume of animals that are coming in, like at some point soon, it doesn't matter how big your shelter is and how shiny and new it is, at some point you're going to be in trouble. We've got to be able to keep those numbers up. And right now I don't feel like that we're doing that for a variety of reasons. So uh, that's where a lot of those marketing tools and other things are going to have to come into play. Brent, every time you've been on the podcast to talk numbers, I have to ask you this. You've been doing this a while. Be real with me. You're looking at it closer than most. As we look to 2022, 23, 24, 25, you know, best laid plans, right? (laughs) I mean, who could have possibly done enough scenario planning to factor a global pandemic into the mix? But given all of this, what are your thoughts on what what's ahead for us? You know, I think now more than ever, it's so hard to forecast, you know, what's going to happen. Like we would have thought going into 2021, I had expected that we would increase the volume of intakes and stuff to coming into shelters at a much higher rate over 2020 than we than we saw. Like I would have thought it would have been we would have probably seen 15, 20% increases and we're seeing four or 5% increases uh, that would have gotten us closer to 2019 levels. You know, we may still see that, but there's also a really decent chance that what we're seeing now is kind of the, I hate the phrase, a new normal for the volume of animals that are coming into shelters, but also maybe potentially some of the restrictions that we're going to have or or the limitations of getting animals back out uh, safely. And so I'm optimistic in terms of our ability as a movement. We have more data than we've ever had before. So we're able to see what those trends are. We have certainly more leaders and more smart brains coming up with solutions than we've ever had before in the movement that I think we'll be able to come up with the solutions for it. Uh, I do worry about a lot of our shelter partners who are 
that have the change fatigue and have the fatigue of keeping up with everything uh, and constantly changing every program and process that they knew uh, and having to train new staff. So I think it's going to be a challenge. I think we're up to it as a movement, but it's not without a, a variety of uncertainties. New normal. What a phrase, huh? Maybe that's the new pivot or silver lining for 2022. New normal. Uh, speaking for myself, I don't know what I thought was going to happen, I guess, but I think naively I thought we would get back to normal. Like at some point someone would say, okay, we're all good now. It's fine. And we're back to working like it's 2017. Probably pretty foolish to think that anything will ever be fine. I mean, it's fine, but that means something radically different than it used to. Uh, and again, I, I want to be clear, I'm not devaluing the concern over COVID, but new normal is life with COVID, which means making those hard decisions. Yeah. And I think I was like you and like a lot of folks um, that I've thought at the end of this, it would go back to 2019 and would go back and that would be normal. And I don't think that's a reasonable expectation. As humans, our natural thing is to always, A, assume that the negative impacts of something are going to be far worse than they ever really are. So like our natural tendency is to always go to the worst case scenario. And I think, especially during this pandemic, you've certainly seen more than your share of people who have gone to that worst case scenario, which is seldom what really happens. So we can over dramatize that. But then the other kind of factor is that we have this system in psychology that actually protects us from the really bad memories and stuff and gives us the ability to adapt to them. And it's a concept called immune neglect. So it actually kind of makes us immune to some of those psychological traumas at times, but it also causes us to not give ourselves credit for our ability to adapt to a negative thing when it happens to us. And we're actually really good as a species of adapting to changes in negativity in our environment. And so I think if we go into whatever this looks like now, which isn't going to be 2019, but it's going to be something different that is going to be fine. And that we as a collective group are going to be really pretty good at adapting out of it, I think we'll be in a much better spot for all of it. So that's where some of the psychological stuff of like, you know, whatever comes, we'll be equipped to deal with it. And that's why I can remain somewhat positive in it, even though I'm totally unsure of what all of this is going to look like. Well, Brent, thanks as always, pal, for taking the time. You're a busy guy. Uh, any parting words? We talked about this a lot during the course of this this conversation about this being really important for shelters because they're trying to keep the volume of animals, uh, keep up with the volume of animals that are coming in. I, I don't want to diminish the fact that it's really important for rescue groups and limited admission shelters uh, as well, because it's pretty obvious that a lot of our uh, municipal friends are really struggling right now. So anything that we can do even as our own, you know, smaller rescue groups or private organizations to help keep up so that we can help relieve some of those pressure points from the shelters who are now seeing, you know, six and a half, seven percent fewer transports than they've previously seen, I think is going to be really important for those folks. And the other thing that I'll say on is like, success isn't an accident for, for these things. Like, we can't hope that it's going to get better somehow magically. Like it is up to us to determine what the needs are in our communities and in our shelters and make the adjustments necessary so that we can keep up. Hope's not a strategy for it. It's through that 
conscious decision to implement some of these programs or re-implement programs or adjust programs that are, are currently in place that's going to help us be successful at the end of all of it. I'm also going to note that Best Friends has a couple of different resources that have come out in the last few weeks. So on December 9th, we've released a webinar from Dr. Kate Hurley, who is doing a presentation on reducing length of stay at the shelter. And she, as a veterinarian, is really focused on keeping animals healthy so that animals can stay healthy and help them get adopted faster because nothing slows down their process quicker than an animal getting sick. And we also just released uh, a couple of weeks ago a length of stay manual. Uh, so as a whole you know, five or six page document around ideas and tips on reducing length of stay that I would encourage people to check out. Go to bestfriends.org slash podcast. You can find the two things Brent just mentioned, the webinar from Dr. Kate Hurley and the length of stay manual. Again, on the podcast website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Scroll down, click on the link for episode 92. We'll also have the links in the show notes for this episode. We also want to know what's happening in your community. Our transports, adoptions down, length of stay up. Maybe you've got some ideas about how to increase life-saving in this current reality we're all facing and you want to share it out with people because you think it'll work for them. No better place for that than the Best Friends Podcast. So you can email us here, podcast at bestfriends.org, podcast at bestfriends.org. The team behind this program, Tawny Hammond, Bethany Hines, Whitney Blyton, Kayla Sebo, and Mark Peralta, my name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.